0: Thank you, Janet. Well, not much has changed right there on the edge. <laughs> I look like an on-the-edge kind of guy, don't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. My name is Dune. I'm alcoholic. I do. It's over since the 25th of September, 1973. And I didn't get here because I liked you either. I didn't get here because I wanted to get sober, and I didn't get here because I wanted to change my life. I didn't get here for any of those reasons. I got here because I just just couldn't be a drunk anymore. I tried being a drunk, and I got real good at it. I turned into the kind of drunk that I, I was afraid that I was going to. I grew up in upstate New York, little town, a lot of farms around there. And around there, they got these little country bars. And you go to those country bars, usually some, some old hotel with a bar in it. Probably back in the stagecoach days, you know, they were just kind of a little town square and everything. And uh, in every one of those little country bars, there was some broke-down old guy. Usually some skinny, raggedy, snaggle-toothed old man. And they had him kind of behind the bar as a combination of swamper and pet. He'd show up early in the morning, and he'd would give him a few draft beers, and then he'd clean up the debris from the night before. And any time they needed a case of beer, you know, down in the basement, he'd, he'd, they'd roust him off the stool, and he'd go down there, and he'd perform little duties around there. And when he wasn't doing his duties, he was the object of derision for all the people that came in. He was easy to pick on. He was always drunk. And my fear in life was becoming one of them. And, you know, towards the end, I never got so I had to go down to the basement to pick up the cases of beer. But, you know, towards the end, my need for a drink, once I got started, would override my ability to protect myself. And I'd do terrible, awful things. And I could just see that slide going things that I'd be ashamed of, and just, you know, you wake up in the morning, and if you can remember them, you give that, oh, jeez, Whoa. Whoa. oh, oh, ah. oh. I tell you, it was hard to keep drinking through that. Now, this, this didn't happen a time or two. I mean, I got, I got good at that. Matter of fact, the uh, bar that I drank in in Cincinnati, I was a traveling salesman towards the end. I didn't want to be pinned down. We had, a, we had a group of guys and girls that uh, we called ourselves the Monday Morning Remorse Club.
1: Because
0: <laughs> we'd been through it before, and we knew that uh, over the weekend we'd drink a lot and do things that uh, we probably didn't want everybody in the world to know, and we'd feel guilty Monday, and sometimes on that Monday morning, the thought, maybe I should stop drinking, would cross our mind. Well, we had our own support group, and we'd get together at the bar, and we'd uh, drink, until the, drink with each other, support each other, until that feeling passed. Because <laughs> we knew how we were. You get yourself a good hangover going, and you get your significant other standing there talking to you, and you get the police coming to the door to tell you that they want that accident report from that car you hit the night before. Yeah, that puts a strain on you, you know, trying to trying to recount what you don't remember is a pretty stressful situation. Where were you? Uh, they don't believe you. You know, people just don't they just don't believe you when you say I don't know. Yeah. Well. That would pass, and then it would be business as usual. From the time I was, I started drinking when I was 15, started drinking in bars when I was 16. I lasted till I was 28 years old. And in that short period of time, that 12 year period of time, I managed to drink up a college education, drink up a full scholarship, actually a national scholarship. I could have gone to any school that I wanted to. matter of fact, I got accepted at an Ivy League school and a, and a school closer to home, and I picked the school closer to home because I could drink in my home state at a younger age than I could in uh, Connecticut. <laughs> I, hey, that was a good reason to pick that.
1: <laughs>
0: and, you know, I went to college, and I, and I liked partying. I mean, the rest of it was all right, but what I really did was like partying, and I could find other people that partied pretty quickly. I lasted at my first college, which was a four-year college, uh, one semester. I lasted at a two-year college, three years somehow. I don't know how I did (laughs) it. Finally, my father took me aside. He says, you know, trying to educate you is pretty much like trying to pound sand down a rat hole. He says, I don't care what you do. You go to work or you you stay here. I don't care, but uh, I'm not giving you any more money. Well, the next day, I went over to the factory that he was... Vice President up, and asked him for a job. And they looked at me, and they got on the phone. And they called my father, and they said, "Well, your kid's over here. He wants a job in a factory." Father said, "Better give him one. He's not doing anything else. Up laying around the house, eating my groceries." So I got a factory job. And just as soon as I got a factory job, because I always had like construction jobs during the summer, that kind of stuff. And as soon as I got a factory job, the uh, young lady that I was dating thought we ought to get married. Now, we'd been dating for quite a while. And I was always going to school, you know, and this and that, so we, didn't, we couldn't get serious. She had a job. She had a steady job. She was a good lady to date because she'd pretty much pay for everything, except during the summers when I was making the construction money. And our dates consisted of um, me going out and drinking, getting drunk, and her hanging around. And because she had to work, I'd take her home at 11 o'clock. And her parents thought I was a great, pretty nice fellow. <laughs> Of course, I'd leave her and go back to the bar that stayed open till two and keep drinking. She never knew that. I never told her. Didn't seem to be important. So here I am with this factory job, drank myself out of a couple colleges, and we got married. What a surprise to her!
1: (laughs) We weren't married very
0: long. We were only married about a month, and. some Saturday morning I came rolling in about nine o'clock. I mean I you know, I was drinking say, Friday night. And she looked at me. She said, Where you been? I told her. And she told me I was lying. We got drunk up in the bar on in the Indian Reservation where we always drank. And when the last call came, we won ourselves a couple cases of beer. The weight you ever try those little shuffleboard bowling things? If you got 300, you want a case of beer. We weren't too good with those little pucks, but towards the end of the night, when everybody's crowding around for the last call, we took a beer tray and we rolled a beer tray.
1: <laughs>
0: 300 game. Who'd have thought that? We'd been practicing all night, so we had a couple.
1: <laughs>
0: we had a couple cases of beer. We loaded up into three or four cars, and we went to the cemetery.
1: <laughs>
0: Way in the back, of the cemetery. Where, I mean, cemetery is a great place to drink. Nobody goes in them at night. They got all these little winding roads and stuff, all these little hills and dales. You just got to watch out for the open graves, you know. <laughs> and that's where we were, and it was raining. And my wife's, my wife looked at me and she said, "Wait a minute, you were drinking all night, and then you bought cases of beer and drank more in a graveyard in the rain." And I said, yes, ma'am, we did. (laughs) Where were you really? (laughs) I said, look, you can call my buddies. And she looked at me because she knew my buddies. She said, I'm not calling them. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. Uh-uh-uh. That was was our favorite place to drink. There was a place where uh, a guy named Mick that we drank with broke his collarbone. A guy, my cousin, Boner Jones, um, had a little trouble. You know, when you're a bunch of guys and you're drinking and drinking a lot of beer, comes a time when you got to kind of let some of that pee out. And, you know, you're out in the country, so you kind of wander off to the periphery of the group, you know. And when you're going to the bathroom outside, you know, there, there's not much going on. You're kind of looking around so you kind of want something to aim at. I mean, in the winter you can write your name. But, you know, during the summer you kind of look, and, and Boner was... Actually, boner. Actually, actually he was little Boner because his big brother Tom was Big Boner. You talk about... You talk, growing up in a small town, that's cruel.
1: How would you like to be
0: known as Little Boner? No, he didn't think much of it either
1: his brother however thought it was pretty neat <laughs> so
0: boner is he picked out a convenient fence post it kind of looked nice and he's kind of washing it down but you know out in the country those fences are electrified and if you know anything about electric fences the top strand carries a little bit, you know, just to zap the cows. But the but the bottom strand carries quite a jolt because that burns off the you know burns off the grass. Well, Boner hit that. Oh, uh, there was an arc, a blue arc from that fence post to Boner. He ended up in the middle, back in the middle of the group, and he was way outside it, on his flat on his back, holding on to himself. His eyes big. And Mick was sitting on the hood of the car, his back up against the windshield, drinking beer. He saw that, and he laughed so hard, he rolled off the car onto the ground and broke his collarbone.
1: <laughs>
0: now, I tell you, you talk about first aid. After about five minutes, when we saw Boner wasn't dead, and we quit laughing. We loaded him in the car and we took him to the hospital. There's only one hospital in the county. It's where everybody, everybody was born in that hospital. And we took him in the emergency room. About eight drunks, Mick walking with one shoulder down like Quasimodo, and Boner's eyes are still blue.
1: <laughs>
0: and this lady, this big old charge nurse, came roaring out. She said, What do you think you're doing? And we told her, and she had to sit down. She was laughing so hard. <laughs> Two security guards come running around the corner, and they—they they didn't have mace in those days, but they had these big long sticks. And they had them, and they told them they started laughing.
1: <laughs>
0: and the docs came down, and they started laughing. And all this time, Boner just stood there with his eyes. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, oh. Well, that's my early drinking in a nutshell, mostly.
1: <laughs>
0: Going to bars until they close and driving around until you can find some place where nobody would bother you to drink and drink until you were done. We used to pride ourselves. We could drink till dawn. We were hardcore. We used to sleep out a lot. Out, in a small town, it's easy to sleep out. You get your... You get your sleeping bag and you and you walk about fifteen minutes one way or the other, <laughs> and there you are. You're someplace where nobody else is. So you just, so you just do that. Drinking was good. Drinking was fun. Well, it kind of put a strain on me living in that little hometown, bring, uh, working in that factory. I was working hard. You know, I've always been a good worker, working 50-60 hours a day or a week. You know. Wife getting more and more nervous, kids starting to come along. First daughter was born, first child was born. Big deal. I tell you what, I was in awe of that whole procedure. I thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world, watching my wife get big and everything. I really was in awe. Except when she called me to tell me she was in labor and I was at the bar, and I said, well, you know what they say, Don. They say the first one never comes on time, so you probably got a lot of time, and I'll be home in a minute. Then her mother called about an hour later. said, you better get down here. She's going to have the baby. I said, well, you know what they say. She said, if you don't come down, I'm going to come up and get you. Now, that's all I needed. My mother-in-law coming in tomorrow. Well, I went back and got my wife. and we went to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, we ran over a skunk. <laughs> right in the middle of the road. (laughs) That same hospital that Boner went when he peed on the fence. (laughs) We went in there and 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 they checked her in and they're going, what's that smell? What's that that smell? Oh, man. Back then they didn't let you take part of the procedure. My job was to, uh, in in the room, my job was to count contractions. I took one look at that dilation chart on the wall and I was done. That, that that was it for me the nurse, was, the, the, the nurse came in and she said uh, how, how far apart of the contract did you
1: see that ah!
0: she said get out of here get out of here she made me sit in the, sit in the waiting room hung over and it was a long time long time my daughter was born a couple years later my son was born this time my wife told me in the morning you know, I didn't have to come home. She said, uh, I think it's time. I said, okay. Took her to the hospital, got her checked in. I said, well, I'm <laughs> I'm feeling a little rough. I'm going to go over and get some breakfast. You'll be here a while. I went over and got across the street from the hospital and got some breakfast, walked back in, and the doctor says, you got a son. Both my kids were born with a father that thought more of alcohol than being there, supporting their mother. And that's pretty much the way it was. I got to be a traveling salesman. I got promoted because I, you know, <laughs> father ran the place, first of all. Second <laughs> second of all, I really was a good worker. I got promoted into a sales service thing and then on the road. That was wonderful. They gave me a company car. Oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, company car. Gave me credit card. <laughs> sent me up to New England where I went to school. I went to school in New England before I went to all these other places. And uh, that was nice. Moved my family up there. Gone. Monday. I'm a New England small. You can probably put New England in the state of huh? Ohio. And uh, I was gone Monday through Friday, like a good trail and salesman is. And sometimes that Friday got a little later than that. Come back, you know, and see. after you've been on the road all week, you got to relax. And I'd relax pretty well. <laughs> Just about the time they got tired of me laying around relaxing, I'd be on the road again. And that lasted for a year. Everything was fine. They transferred me to New York City. So everything kind of started falling apart in New York City. Started drinking gin, like gin. Gin's good. I still went back to New England to get those big couple gallon bottles. Of but there I was in New York City. Had an office in Manhattan. Awful. It was awful. It was terrible. I was all over New York City. I was waking up all over New York City. <laughs> I went places in New York City where you, during the middle of winter you'd keep your windows rolled down, your glove compartment open because if you locked up your car they'd think they'd have something in there so they'd bust it open just to find out. So you'd leave it all open. They could go and go through it. This guy doesn't have anything and leave your car
1: alone.
0: <laughs> I'm serious. At the end of that year they looked at me and they said, You know, gee, oh this this is kind of we're sorry, but we're gonna will you take a transfer to Cincinnati? Oh man, I'd take a transfer anywhere. So i moved the family out to Cincinnati. Coming down, you know, through Cleveland. You're been through have you ever been through Ohio from Cleveland to Cincinnati? You hit a place around Columbus and there's nothing but flat stuff. And I'd never been really East anywhere, you know,
1: <laughs> and,
0: or west anywhere. And I'm, I, and I'm looking and I'm thinking, damn, I got buffalo eyes.
1: <laughs>
0: now you can tell I'm not from around here by the way I talk, but I, I talked a lot quicker back then.
1: <laughs> and I drove a lot
0: quicker. People, people around here, you come to a stop sign, they take turns. <laughs> And here I am, I go, and people will just look at you. Oh. and I go too fast. And oh, people I'd sell to, I'd go in and start talking to them. And they'd look, and they'd glaze over. My boss would say, you got to slow down. you got to talk slower. Oh, it was awful, because I had a big territory, seven, eight states. I was down in Tennessee one day. And this lady says, smiles at me. She says, she says I, I'm just as smart as you, and, and I can understand what you say, but, but you just can talk a lot faster than I can listen. <laughs> 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 oh, gee. Oh, and, you know, traveling still, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting drunk and showing up. You know, what do you do for a living? Travel. I travel. I said, I'm a tribe traveler. And that's what I did. I went places, showed up, did a minimal amount of selling, and then left town. That's what I was good at, showing up and leaving town. My last drink was in a motel, figure that. Down in Lexington, it used to be a Howard Johnson's motel. And I walked into that motel about 4 o'clock in the afternoon after a hard day of waking up somewhere and trying to get rid of my hangover. You know, when you drink a lot, you, and you sweat a lot. So all my clothes kind of smelled like I was drinking, you know? And that's kind of embarrassing. So I didn't want people to know I was drinking as much as I drank, so I had scope mouthwash in a car, doing that all the time. And, you know, have you ever tried to spit scope out of the side of your, out of your car when you're going fast? It just goes all over the side. Oh, in the winter, that was the worst. You know, this green line going back to the car. So I said, well, you know, I mean, it can't kill you. I think I'll, and so as you swish it around, you swallow it. Hey. Hey. Oh. I go through a couple of bottles of scope a week. I never thought about it being drinking. I just thought of keeping my car clean. Huh? Oh. Damn, this is all right. Took away, the, took the edge off the hangover, you know. You can play the radio, really. <laughs> hey. So there I am in the Howard Johnson's motel. They got a barmaid. I like barmaids. If they had bartenders, I drank beer. Well, if they had barmaids, I drank something they had to pour. Because I was a smoocher. That's a that's a nice word for being a, a, a barmaid sucker.
1: <laughs>
0: Hello, down. How are you? Well, I think I'll have a scotch and water. Thank you. Whoa. What kind of scotch is this? I don't think I've ever had this. This is kind of mild scotch. And she's looking at me. You got any other kind of scotch back here now? This tastes a little bit mild, too. How long have you been working here? About five minutes later. She, got it. she says, I got the kind of scotch you like back here. I said, you do? And she said, yeah. And she took that bottle and she turned it up. And she kept it up. And she kept it up and she kept it up. And then she put just a little bit of water on the top. She said, how's that? I said, that's good scotch.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: I said, damn, you're good. You picked good scotch for me. And we talked. And we talked. She was a woman probably my age now. And I was 28 years old. She was a woman in the absolute prime of life. Absolute. And I was smiling at her, and she was smiling back. <laughs> Pretty soon she started saying what all the ladies said to me after a while. She said, uh, uh, you think you ought to slow down? we we got plans. I said, I'm doing fine now. You just you just keep going." Because I knew I'd passed the point where anything was going to go on. I knew that. I was drinking instead. I knew she didn't know. And I wasn't going to tell her. Because if I'm drinking instead, I'm going to get done drinking. And I figure whatever comes later, I can, God will take care of
1: <laughs> <laughs> But right now,
0: I got that drink in front of me. And she said, and she'd say, Ah, you know, I'm, I think I'll close up a little early. Because there's not many people in the bar. Well, you don't want to do that. <laughs> These poor guys look like they needed help. Well, the moment of truth came, and she closed down the bar, and she was getting it cleaned up. And I'm sitting there, happily drunk, just wondering what was coming next. You know, you ever get so drunk where you're just not even part of your own life? <laughs> you just kind of sit there and watch it, you know? I've been I've been that drunk a lot. You know, you get to the point where, you know, you're right where you want to be. Everything's good. You are it. Don't have too many thoughts going on, you know. Nothing hurts. You're not getting ready to throw up yet. Everything's fine. And I think, well, this is. We'll just see what happens. I, I felt that way in jails, you know, and kind of watched the proceedings and watched, the, and, and you know, and they, they let me go. I guess they figured, well, he's pretty calm. I just sit there and watch. You know, it's kind of interesting watching them go through all their things, ask me all those questions. I don't know the answer of, them. and uh, I know, you and know, all. That. So she was. Going through the mo- All of a sudden her daughter who was my age, came in the bomb. And they had some crisis at home. I'm going, Oh no, oh geez, oh that's terrible. I'm thinking, ha 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 yeah, dodge the bullet this time. She said, Oh, I'm sorry. I said, Oh, that's all right, darling. I'm here all week, I'm busy. Here all week. We can just get together for some other time. Well, that was good. She left. I walked back down to my room. It was a nice wide motel corridors, kind of bouncing around, feeling really good, feeling great, matter of fact, because I had enough to drink in me that I was knew that I was going to sleep all night. And I didn't have so much in me that I was going to get sick. I got real good at being able to judge that. So I went in the room, you know, and I turned down the shower just as hot as I could, and I put my clothes on hangers and hung my like clothes in there, try to steam out some of the stink because I wasn't going to spend any money dry cleaning it. Got all ready, turned off the shower, went to bed. Just proud of myself. Thinking, you know, you did it right again. Oh, you slick out. You got drunk as a monkey. It didn't cost you any money. This is Alright, this is good. Life is good. I went to sleep. Then I woke up. I woke up thinking I was going to die. I woke up with every part of my body shaking. <coughs> And you know, I had the shakes before. I had the shakes before quite a bit. But that was always after I hadn't drank for like a while. Not just a couple hours. And I thought, oh, jeez. My heart was just pounding, pounding, pounding in my chest. And I thought I was going to die. I was taking heart medicine already at 28 years old. I had irregular heartbeats, all that. I found out that, you know, you drink a lot, it kind of leaches all the B vitamins and all the trace minerals out of your body. All that stuff's what makes, what makes your heart beat regular and stuff. So I was probably doing that. The doctor said, you drink? Ah, geez, beer and then on the weekend.
1: <laughs>
0: and he gave me some stuff to take, so I'm taking this medicine. And, you know, a year before, my father, 52 years old, had died of a heart attack. I watched him have his first heart attack. He was a good worker, too. I watched him have his first heart attack about 40, 42. And then I watched him get better than worse and better than worse and better than worse until he, until he died. So I'm thinking, oh, geez, here I am. Here I am. I'm done. Dying was always my ace in the hole, really, one of my drink when I was drinking. You know, I figured, well, they'd be better off without me. I'd go about to have that company car and I'd be going down the expressways and I'm thinking, you know, here I am on company business. It pays double on company business, you know. Say, yeah, yeah. All I got to do is ram this into some bridge abutment and, oh, man, my wife can... Remarry again And she can Marry somebody That'll treat her right And take care of the kids The kids will have A good father They'll be better off Without me Tears coming down My face And I'd get over In the passing lane And I'd take that Old company car That was all Torino's Get them as going As fast as they could go Which was almost 100 miles an hour Big old VN Couldn't hardly go 100 miles an hour Oh, you know, you get them up above about. You just keep it floored for a long time. All of a sudden, you can start to smell them. You smell the oil. You know, so the engines getting hot and Oh man, I see these bridge abutments coming up. And back then, men were men. We didn't have those little those little guardrails they bury in the ground in front of them bridge abutments. So you just kind of veer. Oh, uh-uh, we just had bridge abutments, and I'd aim for those. And I'd be getting. I'd just kind of get over on the shoulder, you know, and coming up on it. And then about a mile away, I'd start thinking a quarter of a mile. By the time a quarter mile left come by, I'd think, you know, you screw up everything in your life. You're just going to hit this thing. You're going to be mushed into about two feet tall. And they're going to sit you on one of those little chairs that you've got to run around on. And you're going to have to beg people to give you a beer that you can drink through a straw. And I go, mmm. <laughs> There I was in that bed. I didn't think I had a choice. And oh, my God, I found out I didn't want to die. Oh, I didn't want to. Here I am, right at the brink, you know. I had all these, oh, jeez. So I did. I fell back on my extensive religious training, which consisted of now I lay me down to sleep. And oh, God, get me out of this. Yeah. And I did. I looked up and I said, oh God, I don't want to die. And I can't remember if I said, please help me or not. But you know, my higher power's got a sense of you. I'm glad my higher power's got a sense of you. It makes it a lot easier on me. And all of a sudden, I had the spiritual experience. Or a flash of insight. Or whatever you want to call it illuminating experience. The room became white. Honest to God. White, white, white. Never seen white light. My eyes were open, but the room was white. Couldn't see anything in the room. Just white. I didn't see anything. Didn't see anything. (laughs) I didn't hear anything. Then it came to me that I was alcoholic. It just came to me that I was alcoholic. And it came to me that my life was the way it was and I was the way I was because I was alcoholic. It wasn't the way I was raised. It wasn't the job I had or the wife I had or the responsibilities I had. I was alcoholic. And gradually things came back down to normal. After I'd been in AA for a while, somebody told me to read the big book, and I read it, Bill's story, and he had a similar experience. I thought you were supposed to have a spiritual experience like that. Then a lot of people told me that they hadn't, and then I was probably crazy, or trying to show off because I read it in the book. And, but no, that really happened. Then I was stuck. Here I am, alcoholic. Never been one before. <laughs> didn't, know, didn't, didn't know what you're supposed to do as one. I thought probably, well, I had a choice. If you have, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. That means either I quit drinking, like my uncle did, or I just keep drinking. I'm already pretty good at keeping drinking. And just just give up the ghost. Just be a drunk. Give up the job. Take the company car, drive it around until it breaks down or something, sell it to somebody, and just be a drunk. I knew what I'd do. I had friends that were drunk. And what they did was they'd work the woods, work the Adirondack Mountains. You'd go in the Adirondack Mountains about April when the snow was out of there and you'd work the woods cutting down the trees, logging, doing all that stuff and then when it started to fill up with snow in in November they'd uh, take you out then you'd spend the winter laying up staying drunk and working the woods is great they'd work you all, you all day during the week half a day on Saturday and then you'd come into camp where you lived and you'd shower up and stuff and they'd take you into town for Saturday night which is pretty neat and then Sunday afternoon, they'd bring the the same logging truck. They hauled the trees out, and they'd go around to all the rooming houses and boarding houses and county jails and get you out, load you on the truck, take you back, take you back so you could work. And then that had a that had an appeal to me. That did. I mean, I you know, I liked hard work anyway. Or I could try to stop drinking. That's a novel concept. i you know, I had promised a lot that I was going to stop, but I never really wanted to. I, my heart was never in, it, so I never lasted more than a couple days. My, my desire to stop drinking always lasted when the people around me started lightening up. You know, then I thought, well, you know, geez, it wasn't that bad, and be just I won't go back there again. I won't be with them. I won't drink whiskey. I won't do this. I won't do. This. And then I'd be back drinking. I don't think, probably in my adult life, I'd ever been away from alcohol more than a week, to be honest with you. So here I am. In this motel room, don't know what to do. So I called my uncle, who was sober. My uncle Wells. He'd sober about 10 years then. Oh, You talk about alcoholic. So I didn't know what an alcoholic was particularly, but I remember when he stopped drinking. When he stopped drinking, the family was pretty happy. Huh. So your uncle stopped drinking. You might as well hear it from me. This is my father talking because it was my mother's brother. He's an alcoholic. He's one of those. I said, one of what? He said, one of those people that can't stop drinking. I looked at my father. Oh, like drinks all the time, you know? I <laughs> said, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he had, to go out of, he had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, well, he thought that was terrible. I'm thinking, well, yeah, most of my family drinks all the time. Matter of fact, we live next door to a guy that used to drink with my family, you know, they'd come over and have drinks after dinner and stuff, he ended up drinking himself to death in a VA hospital in Syracuse, New York. They could never get him sober long enough to get antibiotics.
1: I said, you mean like uh,
0: Bob? And my father would say, yeah, I like Bob. I'd say, yeah, but you used to drink every night with Bob. And he said, yeah, but Bob would go home and drink more. I'm thinking, you stay home and drink more.
1: Well, I know. But, you know, what do
0: I know? I'm only 16, 17 years old, man. So, Uncle Wells, the name. Uncle Wells looked awfully sobered up. Jeez, when he was drinking, he was this big guy, nice red face, big smile, his blue eyes kind of shining, a little red around him, you know, really made him look bluer. Great guy. He taught, he taught me how to drive. When I was 16 years old, he taught me how to drive. I'd take his car. You can drive a half hour before sunrise, half hour after sunset. Half hour before sunrise, I was down at his house. And he'd get in the car, and we'd start driving. We never left the county, and it's not that big a county. And we would drive about a half hour, stop about a half hour, drive about a half hour. He knew everybody in the county. He'd, every, every one of these little bars, he'd stop, and he'd say, I gotta go see a fellow. Well, he'd go in and see a fellow. Damn, he knows everybody. And then i bring him home after this day of driving around, the whole family standing there in the driveway looking like this. And I'd get up, where have you been? Driving around.
1: <laughs> then they start yelling at
0: him. Poor guy. But he was my favorite uncle. I remember my we used to have this big family picnic. And my father got a Mercury station wagon, probably the end of the fifties, early of the sixties. Coming down this dirt road after the picnic and my uncle had a one of those old Ford station wagons with the wood rotting off the side and he was laying in the back because his wife wouldn't let him drive and he had that flip window up drinking beer. He liked it. He'd get the beer back there. He was laying against the, all the blankets and stuff. And, he, and uh, every time he finished a beer, he'd throw the beer out and it'd bounce off that new Mercury's hook. <laughs> and, it, you know, the, we're not talking about these aluminum cans. We're talking about those steel cans. Bing! And my father would be mad as hell. I'd be sitting in the back saying, all right, right out of the well, I'm going to whip him and say, man, I, see, I want to see this. I want to see that. That's going to be great. <laughs> and then I watched my Aunt Ruth and my cousins get in that station wagon after a while and head out the driveway, going to Connecticut, back to where Aunt Ruth. I remember standing there in the driveway with Uncle Wells and my grandfather and maybe my mother. Watching Uncle Wells walk around. Huffing and puffing the way we do. I got here. I don't need you anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then he got in there. And then he looked awful. The face got all ashy, skinny, you know. Didn't get back to his self hardly at all. But when I was laying in that motel room in Lexington, he's the guy I called. He is. Called up and said, Where is it? Where is it? "Hear my Aunt Ruth in the background. What's that, Wells?" Some guy going rawr, 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 click. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I had to go through the operator to get the number and hey, that's easy. I had to do that again. Oh, Uncle Wells, it's me, Dune. Uncle Wells, I'm alcoholic. He says, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I said, Damn, you're sorry. <laughs> hey. He says, I knew you had trouble when you were younger. I thought you outgrew it. Nah, just 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 moved away.
1: <laughs> he says, "I got a world
0: directory here. They got some numbers there in Lexington." He said, "Why?" Well, I, I said, "I tell you what. He, he, he says, i 'I'll call some fellows and have them come over and see you.'"
1: Oh yeah,
0: here I am, and I'm here I am in a motel, and I, and I know what the AA mafia looks like. They're little they're little guys with long black coats, little hats on, coming, yeah, yeah, where they are, they're gonna get sober now, we're gonna get sober now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know how you guys are, boy, and I didn't want you any around me. I mean, what are those people in the motel gonna think? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. I said, No, 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 don't call call them. And he said, All right, I tell you what you do. He says, A's worked real well for me. If you feel the same way tomorrow, Get the alright. I woke up the next morning. Jeez, Lexington, Kentucky. Trying to push it off is a bad dream, but you know somehow I couldn't. I got in the car, drove back to Cincinnati, found a phone booth downtown Cincinnati, called Oak Street. I picked up the, the the Netherland Hilton Hotel because I had been in there, and I knew they had those phone booths with the doors on them. They remodeled the thing. They had those new kiosk-type phones. And there I am in the middle of the place calling AA, you know? <laughs> yeah. Come on up to four. Back then, there was a the telephone rang at 405 Oak Street. There was a clubhouse there. And somebody answered the phone and said, Come on up, 405 Oak Street. Do you know where Oak Street is? I said, Yeah. He says it's right off Reading Road. you know where that is? I said, Yeah. I never told anybody I didn't know nothing. I knew
1: everything.
0: <laughs> if you know Cincinnati, there's a town called Reading. It's way up north. So I figured Redding Road I had to go through Reading. So i way up north. And, and, and it does. It goes right through the middle of Redding. So I took Reading Road all the way back down to almost downtown. And he told me it was a big stone building on a corner of Oak and Burnett, 405. Except this time I'm not thinking too well. He says it's a big mansion-looking building. So I get down there and look at the four corners. There's a little house, there's a school, there's a hotel, and then there's a stone building. Which one would be the alcohol (laughs) den? I kind of case out the neighborhood. There is a place that looks like a mansion, but that's a couple doors down. Sits back, nice, pretty house. I figured that probably people living in that stone house were like old men, like it was an old men home. And, and they would tell people to show up so they could laugh at them coming in. Ha, ha, I got another <laughs> So I went over to the Vernon Manor Hotel. I looked up the address for, for, for Alcoholics Anonymous in the phone book, 405 Oak Street. I walked out of the Vernon Manor Hotel across the street. By the time I got across the street, I had forgotten the number. <laughs> so I kind of walked, put one foot up on the steps, and I'm looking. In the, in the sidewalk... They had passed it, and there was somebody who had written AA in the sidewalk. That's a trap. That's a trick. There's a guy, Warren from West Virginia, rocking up on the front porch. I'm looking at him. Well, he kind of, no. Walk back to the Vernon
1: Mountain. Never
0: thinking to write any of this down. I did that two more times. Finally, Warren says, get in there. I'm thinking, you... Ridge Runner, you get in there. Work. So I so I walk up to the door and I knock on the door. You ever knock on the door of an AA clubhouse? That makes a mad. That makes a that means somebody's got to actually get up and open. Oh, yeah. Wilbur D opened the door and he looked like an alcoholic. He had a little plumber coat on, little plumber suit on, little 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 pipe fitter hat on. He said, "We've been waiting for you. Get in here." I I knew it. That AA mafia. Those little guys in the Oh, dude. I had a, a kind of confused with Salvation Army. I don't know why. I thought, men are going to give me, you know, put a nickel on the drum, save another drunken bum. It. I'm going to be on the street corner. They're going to bit me for my uniform and send me in. And they brought me into this club, clubhouse. Yeah? And there's a bunch of guys sitting around. This is about noon. I mean, it takes a long time to go from Lexington to Cincinnati to Reading to Benton.
1: <laughs> and there was
0: R.B. and there was Fireman Bill. And there, and there was Billy B. And there was Tom L. And just guys that are either still sober or dying sober. And they started talking about AA. Now, I'm pretending that it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm just sitting there think you got a of problem well I don't know so want a cup of coffee? sure got me this cup of coffee my hands hadn't been shaking all morning until I got that coffee and I said no and I'm spilling it all over my hands and I'm pretending not to notice I'm getting burned up and they're pretending not to notice finally R.B. just comes over with his hands put them around the cup, and kind of takes it from me smile and walks away and I'm still pretending not to notice. And they're still talking. He comes back in with a coat and with two hands, puts that in my hands, closes my hands around it, and says, You'll probably do better with this. And they told me about their drink. Just the way you're supposed to. But it didn't make any sense to me. I'm not a fireman. I never build a <laughs> I never build a <laughs> boat in my basement like I'd be. I never, I never did any of that stuff. The guy that was a salesman was supposed to. He says, "Yeah." He said, "Boy, you know, I can remember waking up in the morning and just uh, and just oh, dying for a drink and going to Columbus. I ride to Columbus. I'm thinking, you passed ten thousand places to get a drink. Why'd you go that far? You know, finally they got tired of me appraising the place. You can always tell the new guys; they're looking at the molding. <laughs> You, know? you just don't want to make eye contact, so you look around. You know? well, it Looks like uh, they didn't quite miter that corner well. Anyway. <laughs> Finally, Fireman Bill gets tired of it. He brings me up. He takes me in front of the 12 steps there on the wall. He points to the first one. He says, uh, we admitted we're pilots over alcohol. You pile us over alcohol? <laughs> he was tired of it. And I said, well, I don't know. I didn't know. I really, I hadn't been away from it in my adult life long enough to figure it out. He looked. He's going to give me one more shot. He says, what about your life? What about that second half? Has your life has become unmanageable? I filled up with tears. I'm thinking that car I'm driving isn't mine. These credit cards aren't mine in my wallet. Except the ones that are Max can't use them when you guys find out all the things I don't have, this membership committee is going to grind to a halt. And you're not going to want me in your organization. And then I'm thinking, my God, is my life unmanageable? Look where I am. (laughs) I am in Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: Doesn't look like a bar to me. They give me Coca-Cola
0: and coffee and burn myself. Oh... Oh but well I didn't say any of that. I didn't. So then they went over to the literature act and gave me the literature and sent me home. So they keep coming back. I went home, tell you what kind of shape my house was in. I had two kids, a wife, and a dog. I walk in that house fifty times a day sober, and they just don't even turn their hair. I walk in that house once, having one drink. 2 hours ago all eyes are on me and the dog starts having diarrhea up and down the road
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'd walk in after being gone for a while and it'd be dead silence there'd be just that just that few seconds of silence because they all had their radar on my 5-year-old daughter my 3-year-old son and my They'd lock on me, because they never knew how I was going to be. They could tell I'd been drinking, but they never knew how I was going to be. And I wasn't violent. I wasn't a wife-beater. I didn't beat the kids. I didn't do any of that stuff. But I carried that alcoholic tension. I carried that alcoholic anger wherever I went. And they wanted to know. Well, they saw they did their two-second scan. (laughs) He's all right. <laughs> so the kids stayed in the living room. They do that, and then they just very quietly get up and go to the room. If he was she wasn't. And my wife looked at me and she said, "What you always said? Where you been?" You know, I mean, you're traveling salesman. She never not know where I was. She never knew when I was coming home. I'd tell her, but then I'd forget. You know. <laughs> and I, I had the literature. I said, "Guess where I've been?" I couldn't tell her. I couldn't look my wife in the eye. And I told I put the the literature down. She picked it up and said, hey, hey, you're not that bad. She said, ah. I said, I had to tell my wife. Yeah, I am. And they said, I got to go back. (laughs) I went back that night. That's as complicated as my program gets. I came back, came back, came back, came back. After, you know, walked into my little traveling salesman clothes all the time. I didn't like you guys. Didn't like you. You'd talk to me, you'd laugh about drinking. You'd laugh about stuff that I was doing. And I didn't see any humor in it. I didn't see anything, just like the guy said last night. I didn't see a thing funny about my drinking. I didn't see a thing funny about being an alcoholic phenomenon. Wandered in, you know, I'd come to those meetings, and I'd sit there, and I'd listen, and I'd go home. And I'd show up in the afternoon, and I'd do the beginner's meetings. I did everything they told me. And when I was out of town, I'd go to those meetings out of town. Back then, there was 52 meetings in the where and when, and I went to every one of them the first year. I was in every meeting in the where and when the first year or so. Of course, most of them, like 30 of them, were down at Oak Street, and that where and when covered northern Kentucky, Middletown, Hamilton, Indiana. I mean, you know, just I went to every meeting. You're not pinning me down. One day, by mistake, I came walking in in regular clothes. The guy that's my sponsor today isn't known for treating people gently. Which is a good thing for me because I don't react to anything except direct communication. I'm sorry, you beat around the bush with me, unless I want some secondary gain from you, I'm not going to pay attention. I figure if it's not important enough for you to look me in the eye and say it, it's not important enough for me to listen. So with a bunch of people around him like he always had, he looked at me and he said, Hi. My name's Bob. I'm an alcoholic. You're new. I said, what the hell you mean? I've been here, I've been coming around for two months. He goes, the voice is familiar. He said, oh. Oh. I didn't recognize you without your suit and tie. He said, you're a member here? I thought you were president of the place. And all these guys go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Oh, man, 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 man. After a while, it got time for me to get a sponsor. There was a guy in AA that grew up near where I grew up, six foot six, skinny as a rail, big hook nose. Been sober three years, about three years. Then. His claim to fame when he was drinking was that he could beat windshields out of cars with his hand. I mean, he'd, and he'd bet, and he'd beat him. First time I ever met him, he said, "Kadir, don't call me drunk. I'm not calling you nothing. Why would I call him a drunk? What he meant was, if, you, if I got drunk, I wasn't supposed to call him. <clears throat> I didn't.
1: Know.
0: He talked as fast as me. And we were the only two people in the place that could understand each other more than a couple minutes. He says, You need a sponsor. I said, okay. So see that guy back there, he's your sponsor. He got drunk a couple months ago, so working with you is going to do him some good. I went over and I said, hey, my name is Dune. Frank says you're my sponsor. And the guy says, yeah, and gives me all the sponsor rules. After two months, I went up to Frank and I said, what the hell are you doing to me? That guy's crazy. He's crazier than me. Frank says, everybody else finds that out the first week. Took you two months. <laughs> I said, what? Well, I need a sponsor. He said, I'll be your sponsor. <laughs> uh, and you know, he was the best sponsor. He was the best sponsor. That I, he was the best sponsor in alcoholics He taught me by his words, his thoughts, and his deeds. He was the best sponsor in the world. He talked to me and showed me by example what the disease of alcoholism was all about and about recovery. He taught me everything about alcoholism. He wasn't a big book thumper, he was a big book liver. His feet, his butt didn't hit a chair when it was more than five minutes unless the speaker was talking. He was up and around. He was pacing back and forth. He was picking up ashtrays. He was talking to the newcomers. He was going on 12-step calls. He was, he was visiting institutions that he probably should have been an inmate of. And every place he went, I went to. He saved my life. Frank C. saved my life came to the point in my sobriety where he said I had to do a fourth step. I wrote something down, see, you know, when I got sober, I didn't, they said you can have a new life now, so, so a lot of the old life didn't seem to have the glamour and appeal that it used to, which is basically my family. So here I am in a new arena, you know, I'm sober looking good. He saw how I was acting, what I was doing, he said, you gotta take a fourth step. Okay. I put together a fourth step and he took me up to the top of Oak Street there and we're sitting around and he's, he can't sit down he's walking around I'm reading this to him and he's walking around pacing back and forth and I got this drivel and crap you know it, it, honesty hadn't really been a big part of my life ever and I wasn't going to approach it just because he wanted to hear a fourth so I had this crap down and he's pacing back and forth and he said he said damn it aren't you ever going to get to the good part? I said, what good part are we talking about? He says, that part where you did something so bad that nobody else ever did it before. I said, there's nothing like that in here. He says, then you didn't do a good four-step. And he walked out of the room. I'm thinking, I did a four-step. Now, what I did was I, I listed a whole bunch of stuff that everybody knew anyway. You know, now, I wasn't going to get into this searching, and fearless moral inventory stuff. First of all, you kind of had to have a, that presuppose you had a moral structure to, to to fall back on. All I had was what felt good and I could get away with. Now that's a that that is a barrier to taking a moral inventory. At least it was for me. But he stayed my sponsor. and he wouldn't. He taught me that to drink was to die. And then one day I got a call. Have you heard about Frank? He's drinking. I chased him down. I knew where he drank. I would heard he was leaving enough times. took me three days. I chased him down. I'd walk in those bars, I'd look at the bartender, and I'd say, I'm looking for Kadir. And you know how it is in bars. He ain't here. When he comes here, tell him Doom is looking for him. Doom, Frank. Tell you what, Up around Tri-County one day, I saw his red truck, and he saw me about the same time. He blinks his lights, and we pull in the swallowing parking lot up there, and we roll out of our car. And this is the man that uh, beats out windshields and cars. I went up to him, and I said, What the hell you think you're doing? He looked me right in the eye and said, I ain't. He says, I'm not an alcoholic. And I said, You're going to stay drunk a damn long time. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. And I'm thinking this is it. When you're my size in a situation like that, there's no winning involved.
1: <laughs>
0: you don't try to win. What you try to do is what you try to do, honest to God, is mess them up. You mess them up as bad as you can. That way, when you see them the next day, they'll give you a little run. You're not going to win when you're my size, but you want to mess them up. You want to hurt, hurt them enough so that they'll be picking on somebody else tomorrow. So I'm looking at. Him, and I'm figuring with those long legs he has, I'm going for the knee. I'm gonna cut him down, I'm gonna cut him down. And we look at each other. He gets back in his car. I start pulling out, and all of a sudden he pulls in front of me and he rolls out of his car. And I roll out too. He says, I'm drinking because I want to. Three days later on my answering machine, hey, I haven't talked to you for a while. Things are going good. I lost my job. But the boss is letting me stay in the office and use the phone to find another one. My wife and I are getting divorced, but I found a wonderful girl. We're going to get married a couple years when the divorce is fine. We're going to buy a business. I won't have to work there. I can hire somebody to bartend for me. See you later. About a week later, got another phone call. Frank's dead. Sitting in that office that wasn't his, talking on that phone that wasn't his, he took his pistol that was his and blew the back of his head right off. Best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. He taught me if you're an alcoholic, to drink is to die.